This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the second podcast for Chapter 1 of A Student's Guide to Maxwell's Equations, this one dealing with E, the electric field. Given how frequently you run into the words the electric field, you'd think there'd be a pretty easy standard definition that we could use for this. But if you look carefully at electricity and magnetism texts, you'll find that many of them actually avoid ever saying the electric field is, instead being a little less direct, saying something like an electric field is said to exist in a region in which electrical forces are acting. So it never quite says an electric field is and then substitutes another noun. And I think the reason for that is because there's not another noun that we can put in there that really sheds any light on the question of what an electric field is. If you look back for the first use of words like electric field or field of force, it was Michael Faraday who talked about such fields existing around charged objects. James Clerk Maxwell actually identified the space itself around objects with electrical charge as being the field. Running through all of these, of course, is the idea of a force. We're going to adopt the definition that says the electric field is the electric force that acts per unit charge at any point in space. So we simply identify the field itself with the electric force that acts on each unit of electric charge at that point. You can see this in equation 1.1 where we've used the three-line equal sign, which means defined as, and it says the electric field is defined as F sub E, the electric force, divided by Q naught, where Q naught is the usual small test charge. If you're interested in knowing why physicists and engineers often refer to these test charges as being small, you'll see there's a footnote there at the bottom of page 3 describing the rationale, which is simply that if you put a large test charge there, it's going to contribute its own electric field which might alter the charge distribution that was creating the original electric field you were trying to describe. So therefore we put an infinitesimally small test charge there so that its electric field doesn't confound the situation and we make it physically small as well because we're trying to specify the electric field at a point in space so we want that charge to be very precisely located. That's the reason why Q0 is always the infinitesimally small test charge. Looking at equation 1-1 you can see two characteristics right away. One is the electric field is a vector. It's got a little arrow over its head, as does the force. That simply means it's a vector quantity. Vector quantities, of course, not only have magnitude, that is how much, they also have direction, that is which way. In this case, the electric field, as we can see, takes on the direction of the force, provided the test charge is positive. Since the electric force is a vector, it says not only how strongly something is being pushed or pulled, but in what direction, you can learn the direction of the electric field simply by looking at the direction of the electric force on a positively charged test particle. The second thing you can learn from equation 1-1 is that the units of electric field must be newtons per coulomb. We know in the SI system, force has units of newtons. Charge has units of coulombs, so newtons per coulomb must be the units of the electric field. If you prefer, you can think of these as volts per meter, and point number 2 under equation 1-1 explains why those are equivalent. So the E in Gauss's law is simply the electric field that exists on the surface S over which the integral is being performed. In using Gauss's law, it's often helpful to be able to visualize what that field looks like, and to that end, we like to draw field lines. Now, there are several ways field lines can be drawn. The most common ways are either to use arrows with the length of the arrow illustrating the strength of the field at that point and the direction of the arrow pointing in the direction of the field. 
More commonly, you'll see not arrows, but continuous lines. As in the case of arrows, the direction of those lines shows you the direction of the field. But in this case, since the lines are continuous, in order to estimate the strength of the field, you need to look at the density of those field lines. That is, the more closely spaced the field lines, the stronger the field. The number of field lines per square meter indicates the strength of the electric field. Some examples of electric fields are shown on the top of page 4. Things like positive and negative point charges, straight lines, flat planes, spheres, and dipoles are all depicted there. It's a combination of the arrow approach and the continuous line approach. And as you can tell, the fields are strongest where the lines are closest together, which is near the charge, falling off as you move away from the charge. When you look at drawings like this, it's important for you to remember that the field exists between these lines as well. These are just descriptive, and the field is, in fact, continuous in space. It's not as though the field only exists where these lines appear. Some of the characteristics of electric fields are listed in the bullet points at the bottom of page 4. Things like the electric field lines for electrostatic fields always originate on positive charge and terminate on negative charge. So even the field lines that are shown just heading off out of the edge of the figure, somewhere out there beyond the edge of the figure, there must be negative charge that those field lines are ending on. Likewise, for the lines that are shown terminating on negative charges in the figures, those lines must have originated on positive charge somewhere out of our field of view here. Another point is that total electric field at any given spot is the sum, the vector sum, of all the electric fields existing at that point, and therefore the electric field lines can never cross. Remember, the electric field line shows you the direction of the electric field, that is the direction of the electric force on a positive test charge at that point. If you had two lines crossing, that would say there's two directions to the field at this point. If, in fact, there are two objects that are both producing fields there, you simply add those fields together to get a net sum or resultant field, and that's the direction that the field line would be drawn. So electric field lines can never cross. There's a fifth bullet on page 5, which simply points out that if you have a conductor, and if that conductor is in electrostatic equilibrium, that is, no charges are flowing, then the electric field lines are always perpendicular to the surface of that conductor. At the top of page 5, there's a table, table 1-1, which gives you the equations for several simple objects, point charges, spheres, lines, a flat plane. You should take a look at each of those equations. Make sure you understand the symbols that are used there. The one to pay particular attention to is r hat. That's the radially outward unit vector. A later module in this chapter will talk about unit vectors. It's important for you to understand that this r hat points away from the charge that is producing the field. If you're concerned about how negative charge could have field lines drawn coming toward it, remember, wherever you see an r hat, you'll see charge in front of it. And if that charge is negative, it simply means the electric field is in the negative r hat direction. So r hat is a vector pointing away from the charge. So there are two resources that should be helpful to you. Some sketches of electric fields and some equations that give you the electric fields for simple objects. We'll have cause to use these when we start working some examples of Gauss's law.